You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood listeners, and a special welcome to any first-timers who are just now joining us. We are continuing our look this season at the how-tos of Christianity, and as the title of this episode suggests, this time we're going to be looking at time how to manage it according to biblical principles. Ironically, this is an episode that I procrastinated a bit in writing and recording because I really want to make sure that I'm getting this one right. I find that this is the topic, other than major life-controlling issues like pornography or drug addiction, that, at least for my generation among people who grew up in the church, is one of our biggest causes of shame. If most of us walk around feeling condemned about this one specific thing, and yet nobody seems to have any idea how to do it better, to me that's a big red flag. It's a sign that we've been believing a lot of lies related to this topic, especially where God's requirements for us are concerned. We feel like there are things we should be doing or want to be doing, and we're not, and most of us are chronically anxious about it. But that's not what God wants for us, so for the next few minutes, let's really get into what the Bible actually says, what God's requirements are, and maybe even more importantly, what His heart really says about how we use our time minute by minute, day by day, decade after decade, and let's do that not only so that we can know more about God and the Bible in the process, not only so that we can adjust our lives to live up to that standard, Those are noble goals in their own right, but let's do it so that we can start the process of lifting some of that condemnation and anxiety off of ourselves and start breathing a little easier. If you listened to the previous episode, which was about fasting, you'll recall that I introduced this dichotomy that exists between both fasting and feasting, along with the idea that God doesn't want us to overemphasize either of those two extremes. The goal is to find room for some of both in our lives. Well, the same type of both this and that relationship exists in this topic, time management, as well as in the episode that will be coming out two weeks from now, which will be about how we handle resources like money and physical possessions. On that note, by the way, if you are not subscribed, please do so at this time so that you don't miss out on that upcoming episode. And if you have any friends who want to be more like Jesus, please take a moment to share this podcast with them. Also, on a personal note related to this episode's topic, I want to thank each of you who have taken the time to listen to this podcast. And I'd especially like to thank those who have recommended it to other people. As we're about to get into in just a little bit, time is a very precious commodity. And so I'm honored that you would choose to spend some of it on this thing that I've been creating. Anyway, back to the topic at hand, God has work for us to do, but to him that's a secondary concern. His primary concern is always with our well-being, and so he not only recommends but even commands his people to observe periods of rest and relaxation alongside the very good, spiritually fruitful work that we're supposed to do. At first, that sense of balance can feel difficult to manage, but Part of following Jesus well is learning to trust his leadership through the Holy Spirit in our lives. With his help, 
God wants us to excel at both work and rest, doing and being, because in both states we can grow and both states teach us about who He is. If there's ever a question of priority, though, feasting comes both before and after fasting, and rest comes before and after work, because God calls us His sons and daughters, His beloved, and that's not the same as being a servant or a slave or even an employee. The Bible starts talking about work in the second chapter of the very first book. Genesis 2 describes the very familiar scene in which Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden. This is paradise, it's perfection, nothing is wrong or ever has been wrong. And so it's very easy for us to imagine that they spent their time frolicking through the garden, laying around, eating fruit, and generally not doing anything useful. But that's not the picture that the book paints. Instead, God gives this primordial couple work to do. They have a job. And that job is to cultivate the garden, to make it grow, and to generally take care of the world that God had just created. And this was work that they did joyfully. It was fun. And it didn't seem frustrating or pointless or even difficult because they were doing what God had created them to do. And of course, that's where the story takes a left turn. The short version of what happens next, in case you don't know, is that they disobey God by breaking pretty much the one restriction he placed on them, which was not to eat fruit from a particular tree in the garden. Why that was such a big deal is a very interesting topic, by the way, that I'll have to cover in a later episode, or I might even write a book about it one of these days. I've been thinking about doing that. But for now, the point is that their disobedience had consequences, like being expelled from the garden, and now they would have to work for their survival. Human beings now had to spend most of their waking lives in this back-breaking struggle against the forces of nature, just to produce a few crops or whatever else we're trying to make. Work became a grind, a rat race. And unfortunately, that's the world we live in today. It's exhausting. The real kicker is that this isn't just true about work as in what we do for our paychecks. Everything else in life is a struggle too. Even when we come home from work, there's still grass to cut and laundry to do, and there's that leaky toilet in our hall bathroom that keeps flushing itself in the middle of the night, and I still haven't fixed it, but I really do mean to do that one of these days. There's even hard work involved in just keeping our bodies strong and our spirits tender and our minds sharp. And then there's our relationship with God. I mean, he demands some of our time too, right? Aren't we supposed to be reading the Bible and praying for 30 minutes every morning? And doesn't he expect me to spend a day every week only doing church stuff? Everything takes time, and it seems like we never have enough. The average life expectancy for someone living in the United States right now is 77.28 years. Another way to look at that is that it's just shy of two and a half billion seconds. Now, if you haven't spent more than, say, about 200,000 hours of that time, for you, the whole thing probably feels like an eternity. But from my perspective as someone who, in a little less than a year from now, is about to hit the halfway point on his life expectancy, I assure you that it's not nearly long enough. There's so much that I haven't done. And I'm getting to the point now where I have to make tough choices. I know I won't be able to do everything I want to do in the time allotted, so I probably won't ever hike from Georgia to Maine over the course of a whole summer, 
and I may or may not ever get around to writing that book about the garden and the fruit and why eating it was such a big deal. I might not become a full-time pastor slash podcaster, even though I would love to do that. I might not be able to do any of those things, depending on how I choose to spend my life, the remaining length of which, by the way, I don't have a clue about. I might go another 80 years, or I might not even finish editing this episode before it's released. I'm sorry to paint such a bleak picture at the beginning of this episode. I just wanted to lay out the problem, not just the way I see it in scripture, but the way so many of us feel it. In seriousness, if you're one of those ultra-rare individuals who love their job and don't mind fixing the toilet and you read the Bible all the way through every year and everything else that a normal functioning adult supposedly does and somehow you aren't exhausted all the time, then I'm genuinely happy for you. Keep up the good work. But for the rest of us, I think there are two specific takeaways we can find in the aftermath of that infamous fruit debacle found in Genesis chapter 3. The first is that we shouldn't be surprised to find difficulty all around us. This story gives meaning and language to the shared and very human experience that I just described of spinning your wheels for years and years and feeling like you're going nowhere. So if any of this bleak description of our limited mortality is resonating with you, then please know that you are not alone in this. The second lesson, though, is almost the opposite, and yet it's still true. In the Garden of Eden, work wasn't a drain. It was actually fulfilling. It contributed to and enriched the humanity of the people who performed it. And that means that there's hope that it can, and maybe even should, be fulfilling for us too. God made work for us to do, not the other way around. In other words, it's not that God created us to do the work because the work had to be done. Instead, God created us, and then he created good works and laid them out in front of us because we're his masterpieces, and a masterpiece that's not put on display is a waste. At least in part, we become our truest selves, the people that God wants us to be, in the context of our work, and so work is an integral part of God's plan to form us and shape us into something that reflects him in his glory. I've got an episode in the works that should be released about a month from now on how we can discover what work we're called to do, but for today we're just dealing with the broad strokes of that conversation, what applies to everybody. Basically, the situation is that there are powers of darkness in the world that need to be overturned. There are lost and rejected people who need to experience God's love, and on top of that, there's something noble about providing not only for our own needs, but the needs of others as well. That's not to say that the work we do will always be financially profitable or that it will always be fun, but when we do whatever we do as an offering to God, he promises to multiply our efforts and use them to bring about the redemption of the world. And as I mentioned earlier, God uses that same work to bring about redemption in us. Not that our works earn us a better place in God's eyes, but rather the experience of doing the work helps to change us. Honestly, this is part of the greater pattern within Christianity that faithfully doing hard things for the right reasons always results in us becoming more like Jesus. However, as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, there's another side to this coin. So many Christians over the centuries have heard the message that I just gave you, that God has work that he expects us to do, and they stop there. 
Somehow we've concluded that the work is the point of why God created us, and that if we don't get it all done as quickly as possible, he's going to be disappointed or the world is going to fall apart. In short, we've learned to believe that God is primarily our boss, and that he's not even a very good or gracious boss. We picture him as this stingy taskmaster, whose concern is completing the task at hand, whatever the cost, and we imagine that we're going to be judged on the basis of what we accomplish for him. How many chapters of the Bible did we memorize? How many poor people did we feed? Or the classic, how many souls did we save? And that's not how God works. I want to suggest to you today that God doesn't intend to exhaust us. Technically, yes, he is the boss, but he promises in the Bible that the burden he wants us to carry is a light one. And that's reflected all over scripture. The Psalms describe sleep as a gift that God gives us precisely because we're his beloved. And the law of Moses establishes not only a day of rest every week, but also a whole yearly calendar full of holidays on top of that, on which God's people were expected to refrain from working, so that instead they could worship God, rest, have some fun, and spend time with their families. In fact, failing to do so was a capital offense under that particular legal system. And I'm not saying we need to do that, it just goes to highlight how important this is in God's eyes. Looking forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus saying to the crowds that were following him, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. One of my favorite Bible stories is about the prophet Elijah, who lived back in the early 800s BC. After a long period of confronting idolatry and proclaiming God's message to his people, he was, frankly, burned out. He slid into this deep depression, so deep, in fact, that at one point he asks God just to kill him. He wanted to give up. In all honesty, I have to admit that if I had written the Bible, I probably would have had God telling Elijah to suck it up, push through it, work harder, win the fight against his enemies, and then, Elijah, then you can relax. But God's response is completely contrary to what I would expect. He has Elijah go out into the wilderness, take a nap, eat a snack, and then just wait. And then God meets with him and restores his heart from there. In the middle of a national crisis, God's remedy wasn't to simply try harder, it was to rest. And sometimes taking a break is the most spiritual and most productive thing you can do from God's point of view. And that's what God says to us. So many Christians today are facing burnout. And the real tragedy here is that our faith plays a big part in burning us out. Our churches keep coming up with programs upon programs, service opportunities, camps, retreats, and the unspoken idea behind all of it is that if you don't show up, you don't really love God. Or at least you don't love him the way you're supposed to. And then there are all the expectations placed upon your personal time. In addition to going to church at least once or twice a week, we're expected to read through the whole Bible once a year, the book of Psalms and the Gospels every month, and the latest must-read devotional book on top of that. You also need to have a list of people you're praying for fervently every day, and of course you need to be thinking about God and singing songs of praise and quoting scripture pretty much non-stop the rest of the day. Watching TV or telling a joke or listening to so-called secular music isn't just flirting with the ways of the world, it's a waste of valuable time that you should be spending on God, 
or at least that's how it's taught to us. Now what makes this really tricky is that nothing I just mentioned is a bad thing in and of itself. If you have the available time and the stamina to pray for your loved ones for an hour every morning, that's wonderful. What an amazing gift to be able to offer both to God and to those friends that you're praying for. The same goes for reading scripture and for attending a variety of church meetings. My wife and I are part of a very active church community that has things going on almost every day, and we would love to see these people every day, but it's just not possible. And you know what? That's okay. The last thing God wants us to do is turn these very, very good practices, the things we've been talking about all this season, into laws and obligations that can only serve to condemn us. Instead, these practices all exist to bring us life. Even the existence of a command to rest on occasion is something that believers have been weaponizing both against each other and even against themselves for thousands of years. This is something Jesus ran into during his ministry. He would sometimes go into a village, and then later that afternoon he would miraculously heal a few people. Jesus faced criticism and backlash from the religious community who said that he was violating God's law by performing miracles on the Sabbath. His response was that the command to rest was never meant to become a burden. In fact, none of the spiritual formation practices we've talked about this season are meant to be a burden. They exist for our sake, not the other way around. So the best course of action is to do each of them to whatever degree you're able, as well as to whatever degree brings you closest to God. Now, to find the right blend and the best ratio of those habits, including rest, that will help you to pursue a relationship with God in a healthy, wholesome, and fulfilling way, I can think of two analogies from nature that can teach us a lot about this topic. The first has to do with the food that we eat as an analogy for regulating those spiritual disciplines I just talked about. I remember I used to work with a young lady who was always talking about the latest dieting craze. One week it was the benefits of apple cider vinegar, and the next week it was all about going low carb, and the next week it was all about kale. And the problem was that this particular young lady assumed that more of a good thing is always a better thing. In fact, she assumed that right up to the point where she ate so much kale that she started to get sick and her internal organs started shutting down. You see, there's a physical limit to the amount of kale that you can fit in your stomach. And even if you do find some way to stuff yourself with more and more of it, it contains vitamins and minerals that are very healthy in small to moderate doses, but they become toxic and even life-threatening above a certain threshold. I should let you know at this point in the story that my friend from work didn't die, she's actually okay. But the reason I bring it up is that I think this is exactly what we've done with a lot of these spiritual formation practices. More is not always better, and we shouldn't overdo them to the point that we overload and damage ourselves with the very things that were intended to help us. To stretch that analogy out even further, I'd say that just like each individual person's dietary needs are going to be different from anyone else's, so also will each person's spiritual needs vary at least a little bit. And while it is true that a little kale would do pretty much everybody some good, it's also true that there's no one right amount of kale that will make each person optimally healthy. And the same goes for each of these disciplines. Some people may need 10 chapters a day of scripture, while others may genuinely be spiritually healthier on just one. 
even your requirements for the spiritual discipline of rest, as well as that of doing good hard work, will be different from every other person's. So I would encourage you to be very skeptical anytime someone claims that this or that rhythm of life or scripture reading plan or what have you is the secret to spiritual formation. Follow your instincts. Learn how to identify when you have more of an appetite for this or that spiritual nutrient and act accordingly. And then when you already have a lot to digest, when there's a lot on your plate, if you will, then learn to say no thank you to the next thing that comes along because you don't want to overdo it. Now the other analogy has to do with the good works that God created for us to do. Because the Bible was written in the context of an agricultural, pre-industrial society, it tends to use the language of planting and harvesting when it describes that work. The yearly agricultural cycle starts and ends in winter because that's a season of rest. When the ground starts to thaw and spring is coming, that's the time to be busy planting seeds and then all summer the goal is to cultivate those seeds, watering and fertilizing them, removing weeds when possible, and then diligently waiting for the harvest which comes in the autumn. Then once everything is harvested, most cultures in ancient times would have a huge celebration thanking God for the fruits of their labor, whether that's wheat or apples or whatever else. Then the land would be able to rest for another winter before starting the whole process over again. In this analogy, if you haven't figured it out yet, we're like a grapevine, and God is like the farmer. God takes us through winters, seasons of rest where not much is going on. During that time, he may be removing rocks from the soil of our hearts, tilling up the rough patches, or pruning away whatever structures from the previous season aren't going to help us in the future. But the point is that during this part of the process, he doesn't expect us to do the work. We start from a position of rest, expecting God to work within us before we ever begin to work for him. The next season to come along is planting. God places dreams and ideas in our hearts for things that he would like us to accomplish. And the thing is that it's not usually very obvious what's going to grow out of those seeds once they're planted. Looking at a grape seed, or even at a grapevine itself, you can't really tell much about what the fruit is going to look like, much less how it's going to taste or how it could be used in a culinary sense. And sometimes that's just how it works with God. He usually gives us part of the plan, and then we run with it, and it turns out different from what we expected. Not wrong, just different, and usually even better than what we would have come up with by ourselves. As those seeds germinate and as the little seedlings grow into full mature plants, both the soil and the vine end up doing more and more work. And that's especially true near the end when the fruit is growing at a rapid pace because it's almost ripe enough to pick. That's the point when the most nutrients and water are being pulled up out of the soil by the plants and transferred into the fruit. And in human terms, that's usually when the burden we carry is the heaviest, right before the harvest time. Then the big day finally comes when summer turns into autumn and the fruit is finally ready to be picked and there's a great celebration. Whatever work God has you doing comes to fruition and you get to rejoice in the goodness of his plan and the work that he did through you to accomplish it. From that point onward, the plant doesn't have any more work that it has to do during that growing season. 
At this point, the vines are cleaned and they experience another season of dormancy while the soil is once again nurtured and fed and cared for until the next spring when the whole process repeats. That's what it's like to be a vine in God's garden. Sometimes it's busy, and sometimes it's really not supposed to be busy at all. And among other things, being a mature Christian means learning to cooperate with what God is doing in each stage of that process, letting Him bring forth fruit out of your hard work, and then enjoying His rest when each job is done. God doesn't want you to burn out any more than a farmer wants his plants to shrivel up and die. God isn't honored by our exhaustion. So if you're trying to serve him so hard that you're working yourself to death in the process, please stop. You are worth so much more than any work you could ever do for God. On the other side of that spectrum, if you're someone who's been so burned out that you don't think God can use you anymore or you're not even willing to be useful, I can promise you that he's good and that his kind of work fills your heart up instead of emptying it. And if the kind of work that you've been doing, the kind of work that burned you out in the first place, doesn't sound like that, then it wasn't from God in the first place. On that note, as we close out this episode, I would like to give you a few pieces of practical advice on how to avoid burnout, which, by the way, is the goal of good time management from a Christian perspective. It's not about getting more work done. It's about preserving our hearts as we get work done. The first piece of advice is to define times of rest for yourself. Here, the biblical model isn't a bad one. A weekly day off, enough time to sleep every night, taking some time each day to recharge and let God love you, and then taking some holidays every now and then to decompress, that's not a bad mix. Any plan that's close to that one will probably suit you well enough, though, like I said earlier, everyone will have to find their own ideal balance. The second piece of advice is to be willing to say no to opportunities as they come up. Even if they're good ones, even if it's about serving God, it's important to establish boundaries that protect whatever times you've established for both work and rest. And don't be afraid to prioritize what you know God has planned for you to do, even if it means you don't get to do some of the secondary and tertiary things that don't matter quite as much. Third, be very careful about addictive or time-killing activities that may keep you from working but don't actually give you an opportunity to rest fully. The biggest culprit here would be the endless scrolling that most of us do on our smartphones. At the moment, it does feel relaxing because it allows us to disconnect from the overstimulating world we live in, but most of the research coming from the world of psychology is saying that it doesn't actually contribute to our well-being. In fact, it's actively raising our anxiety levels over time. And the same goes for most forms of social media, as well as the modern 24-hour news cycle. Now, I'm not saying don't participate in those spaces. All I'm saying is don't confuse them with actual rest. You need a real break. And I promise the world will be there when you get back. You're not actually going to miss out on anything that you can't live without. Finally, watch for signs of burnout, like generalized anxiety, depression, addictive behaviors popping up out of nowhere, feeling exhausted all the time, losing sleep, even a temptation to sin that you don't usually struggle with. If it pops up, a lot of the time that means that you're exhausted somewhere, and what you really need to do is rest. 
Now, when you do notice that something's off, do whatever it takes to create empty space in your schedule so that you can catch up. Honestly, your schedule doesn't need to be full to begin with, and a little empty space programmed in beforehand can help prevent burnouts before they even start. Now, that's all the advice I have at this time about managing your time God's way. Hopefully this episode was helpful to you, and hopefully you'll join me in two weeks for our next episode, which will be about an equally anxiety-raising topic, how to manage your money as a Christian. Now, I do promise when we get there, it won't be nearly as stressful as it sounds because once again, God is good and he actually loves us. Anyway, I'll see you then. And meanwhile, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.